Okay, hello everyone and welcome to ACTUS Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. ACTUS Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to ACTUS. Today, Wednesday, November 15, marks our 83rd program. My name is Brian Murphy, Director of ACTUS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's special edition of ACTUS Radio, 2018 CDI Pocket Guide Preview. Again, this is a little special show. We're, we're off our regular two-week cadence, but we're here to bring you a uh, look inside the new 2018 CDI Pocket Guide. And I have with us here today the authors of said pocket guide, um, guests that may very well be joined at the hip. I can't recall ever introducing one without the other, and that's that's almost no exaggeration. Um, but let's start with uh, Richard Pinson. We can see on your screen at left, uh, Dr. Pinson is principal of Pinson and Tang and is based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. After graduating from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville. He completed his residency and fellowship in Vanderbilt and the University of Pennsylvania. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians, board certified in both internal medicine and emergency medicine, and is a certified coding specialist. Of course, he's the author of the CDI Pocket Guide, um, as well as our new outpatient CDI Pocket Guide, focusing on HCCs. We're going to give you guys a short little look at that at the end of today's show as well. Um, he's also written, uh, he continues to write, uh, a very informative coding corner column for the uh, American College of Physicians Hospitalist Magazine. And welcome to the show, Dr. Pinson. Thanks, Brian. I'm really, uh, really happy to be here today. We're very excited about uh, this little uh, presentation. All right, excellent. And we also have with us today uh, Cynthia Tang, RHIACCS. Cynthia is a coding CDI and health information management consultant. And also as principal of Pinson and Tang, uh, Cynthia is based out of Houston, Texas. She has over 25 years consulting experience in the coding and CDI arenas and has provided CDI assessment, implementation, and educational services for over 300 healthcare facilities nationwide. Uh, just as with Richard, she is co-author of our best-selling pocket guide and outpatient pocket guide, and I'm pleased to have her on as well. So welcome, mm -hmm. Cynthia, to the program. Thanks, Brian. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, let's start with, uh, of course, as we always do, a um, a question, a poll question related to today's topic. I'm going to go ahead and pull that up on your screen. You should be seeing that at this point. It reads, how often do you reference the CDI pocket guide during your health record reviews or medical record reviews, whatever you happen to call them these days? Uh, do you reference it multiple times per day? Perhaps you look at it maybe once per day, uh, a couple times per week, less often as needed as a reference, or maybe you don't own the pocket guide at all. So again, how often do you reference this tool, the CDI pocket guide, during your health record reviews? Multiple times a day, once a day, a couple times a week? less often as needed or you do not own it at this time. Got about 80% of our audience has voted at this time, so I'm going to go ahead uh, close this out and we will 
as always come back to this uh, at the conclusion of the uh, of the program our interview I should say well as I mentioned our guests today are Dr. Pinson Cynthia Tang uh, welcome to the program thanks for being a part of Actus Radio uh, as I mentioned today's show is a little different than our usual programming and uh, instead we'll be taking a look at our newest edition of our most popular book the CDI pocket guide uh, we're gonna we're gonna actually feature not just what's new, but maybe some important highlights that even folks that aren't buyers or aren't intending to buy will will get some value out of um, some important updates for the CDI profession from a clinical encoding perspective. So uh, let's go let's go ahead and uh, and jump right in with the with the pocket guide. Maybe we can start with an overview of what's new in the 2018 edition and, and maybe what our regular readers or past buyers can expect from um, for new changes or updates. Let me know, Cynthia or Richard, when you want me to pull up the, um, some of the sample pages you've provided me. Yeah, I'll take that question, Brian. Uh, yeah, if you could put okay. the table of contents for the pocket okay. guide up. Um, so first of all, as in all of our uh, editions, the pocket guides, uh, divided into five different sections. There's the guidelines, which includes the most important official coding guidelines for the CDI and coding specialists, but includes, as you, as you see, many other topics like clinical validation, HCCs and risk adjustments, uh, pay for performance, guidelines for the compliant uh, query, um, which is all very helpful information um, as a quick reference. Um, the key references is really the bulk of the book, and it's referenced probably the most frequently, at least I know we reference this most frequently. Um, and this includes the clinical definitions, criteria, coding, and documentation challenges of more than 50 diagnoses um, and represent probably uh, almost all of the conditions a documentation specialist deals with every day. Uh, then the third section is the comorbid conditions, includes detailed listings, some descriptions of the most common important species, MCCs, HCCs, um, and then some APR DRG diagnoses. Um, the fourth section is the DRG tips, which helps users kind of identify alternative diagnoses that improve the DRG assignment. It's probably most helpful for the new uh, CDI specialist or coder. Um, and then the MSDRG table, which includes the description of all the DRGs, the weights, and everything else. <clears throat> so almost every topic in the pocket guide has been updated in some way, um, but some of the major updates uh, for 2018 include um, in the guidelines sections, we incorporated all the new coding guidelines and code changes, um, such as a clarification of the new coding guidelines for the with and code also. Um, we have an authoritative clarification of the official coding guidelines um, for clinical validation and signing codes. Um, we've updated the complications of care section on how, when, and how to code those. Um, and then we've expanded the HCC and risk adjustment section. Um, from the key references, um, we've added some new topics uh, such as C. diff. Um, we've completely revised, clarified, updated respiratory failure. Um, for both adults and pediatrics, and also the post-procedural respiratory failure, which is now part of PSI 90. Um, we've updated all the sepsis content, expanded the sepsis 3. We've added the SOFA scale, um, included all the diagnostic and coding changes for the uh, types of MI, um, updated neoplasms, 
uh, expanded diabetic complications, um, uh, added encephalopathy with CVA. Uh, and then um, finally, the comorbid conditions, uh, we've expanded the HCC diagnosis list that also includes the HCC number and the weights. Um, so that's kind of a summary of some of those changes for 2018. Wow, you guys have certainly been busy. I know this is a huge project for you every year. Um, having worked with you behind the scenes on it, I know how much work goes into the pocket guide. So sounds like a ton of uh, great new updates. Maybe we can um, get into some specifics here, and I'll show on, uh, next on the screen. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some updates to myocardial infarction. I know that there was some major changes here, uh, some of the code sets and what CDI and coding professionals need to be aware of with these new code changes. So I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, move to this section. Um, you can see here myocardial. All right. Do you want, you want to weigh in with this, Dr. Pinson? Yeah, Brian, take that on down where they can see the types, type one through five, if you don't mind, yep. different types there. Absolutely. Uh, in this section, uh, we actually uh, spend a good bit of time uh, defining and describing these five uh, internationally recognized types of MI, both clinically and from the coding perspective, because now we have codes for these, these different types of MIs. It becomes really important uh, now to distinguish between type one and type two. Uh, type one it includes both STEMI and non-STEMI. Uh, and these are primarily due to coronary artery disease with coronary occlusion. Type 2 uh, is an MI primarily due to supply-demand mismatch, which is caused by another condition rather than an acute coronary occlusion. Um, the patient may or may not have coronary artery disease, but in type 2, the coronary artery disease is not believed to be contributing uh, substantially. It's the ischemic imbalance of supply and demand for uh, oxygen. There are a lot of situations like uh, you see here, anemia, hypotension, uh, rapid tachyarrhythmias. Um, type three, interesting, is death from an MI before cardiac markers like troponin and CKMB can be obtained. Um, kind of an unusual circumstance except for patients who may uh, arrest prior to arrival in the ER and uh, or shortly after you may have an EKG that suggests an MI that clinical circumstances may but you don't have the biomarkers. Uh, this is not common uh, in the hospital or shouldn't be at least. Uh, may occur but much more common for the ER situation. Type 4 is an MI related to PCI or stent thrombosis. Type 5 is MI related to coronary artery bypass grafting. These both have very complex clinical uh, definitions, and uh, we uh, refer our readers, if they're interested, for more information to the uh, international MI definition uh, consensus which is also referenced in the uh, pocket guide. It's important to notice that all the codes for all of these types of MIs are MCCs when they're not principal. Types 2, 4, and 5 would typically be expected to 
be secondary uh, diagnoses, not necessarily the principal reason for admission. Uh, type 3 is not going to happen too often uh, so and would likely be a secondary diagnosis if, uh, uh, if it occurred in the hospital. So uh, you're going to have MCCs probably whenever you have these types. Uh, of course, STEMI and non-STEMI, which are type 1, commonly uh, are the principal reason for admission. Thanks, Brian. All right. Great stuff here and some, and some major changes. Glad to see you guys covered that. Um, you know, let's maybe talk a little bit about some of the, uh, I know that I also understand there were some clinical updates to respiratory failure that you guys are covering in the pocket guide. Cynthia alluded to that in her preview with a table of contents. So do you have any insight you can provide there? And I will, again, pull up uh, some sample pages here from the, from the pocket guide. Right. Uh, let's see how much of that table we can get because uh, we're, we're very excited about the improvements we made in explaining acute respiratory failure that we think is going to enhance learning and mastery of this subject uh, by our readers. Uh, I, I like the new approach we're taking, which more clearly delineates hypoxemia and hypercapnic respiratory failure and some of the nuances thereof. As you can see here, we've added a new table that gives essential blood gas measure definitions and normal ranges so that everybody can be very familiar with these uh, abbreviations, these terms, what they mean and what the normal ranges are. Uh, we have assumed that everybody knows those, but I, I think this is valuable and I don't think we should have made that assumption. And we depend so much on all of these terms in their uh, abbreviated form that uh, we think it's really necessary to have a description here for uh, the readers. There's another table, Brian, below this one uh, that demonstrates diagnostic standards for the spectrum of progression from normal oxygenation to hypoxemia to acute respiratory failure. Uh, this uh, is something that we've never really focused on before that has been kind of vague, but it's always been there. And so uh, we sort of finally pieced this together in part because of the new uh, sepsis SOFA criteria, which actually incorporates some of this stuff using the PF ratio. But uh, what we've taken here is normal oxygenation for PO2, SpO2, the pulse oximetry reading, and the PF ratio when patients on oxygen. You can see what normal is considered to be. A patient who's hypoxemic has the ranges shown there. And then if you fall below the ranges in the last column, you have acute respiratory failure. Um, let's see, I think there's another slide now where we included the table that translates. This is really uh, an essential thing. Further on down, if you don't mind, Brian. Uh, where we translate the pulse oximetry oxygen saturation into the equivalent PO2 that is necessary for calculating the PF ratio when the ABG is not available. In other words, you don't have a PO2. Uh, if you remember, the PF ratio is the PO2 divided by the percent of oxygen. That's the F, fraction uh, of inspired oxygen. Um, 
But if you don't have a blood gas, you don't have a PO2. And there is a translation uh, that does uh, give you an approximation of what the PO2 is whenever the SPO2 on the pulse oximetry is measured. And you have to have this conversion table to do that in that situation when you don't have a PO2 to figure out what's the PF ratio because this patient's on oxygen. So we thought, wow, uh, that should have been there all along. And it's a very important uh, piece of information that can be used every day. Uh, there are other uh, important, I'm sorry. Oh, I just was uh, commending you. It looks, it looks great. I can see how this would be very helpful. And I think it's uh, bring it to. absolutely very valuable. Uh, and we also added uh, there are changes to ARDS definition, correction of the old acute respiratory distress ARDS uh, dilemma, where acute respiratory distress was indexed uh, to ARDS. We clarified intubation for airway protection. A lot of people ask about that. We've got a whole new pediatric respiratory failure section because there are significant differences in the clinical approach. Right. Now, you guys get a lot of questions, I know, from readers throughout the year, and, and you, I know you will answer those, but you will also take those into consideration for the next edition and update if you think that something's coming up again and again or people have this, are, are confused. Maybe you can, looks like you might have taken some of that advice to heart and made some, some, some good changes here. I think people should should we know do. that that you you're, you're certainly available to uh, for questions about the pocket guide as well. We really do. Uh, we want to have questions when uh, uh, there seems to be any disagreement, when people don't understand something, when they see something that they think ought to be there for them. We really do want to hear from uh, our readers because it just makes it better if we know what they're, what challenges they're facing. So we really do encourage uh, input uh, on the pocket guide from anybody who has ideas about it. We're always willing to learn something new. Yep. Well, why don't we, um, before we leave the pocket guide, the 2018 pocket guide, we'll maybe we'll move to the Another section that's undergone some significant revisions, sepsis, in particular sepsis 3. Uh, again, some major changes there. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the coding of organ dysfunction with sepsis and the addition of the SOFA scale that you guys included this year. I'm going to go ahead and pull that up, too, for, right. our, for our, our listeners. Why don't we just go, go straight to the SOFA scale, Okay, gotcha. if you don't mind. Um, because the uh, we all know that sepsis is evolving rapidly. The sepsis three definition is not based on SIRS; it's based on acute organ dysfunction. That's defined by SOFA scores, which is the sepsis-related organ failure assessment. Um, and uh, you have to have a you you determine a baseline measure, and then the patient's current status in terms of their SOFA scoring. If uh, they have an increase by two points or more from the baseline then that qualifies for acute organ dysfunction under the sepsis 3 definition. You can have a one-point increase in two of these, for example, or a two-point or more increase in one. It doesn't matter, and most people have more than two if they really have uh, have sepsis. So uh, we said this has got to be in there because you really can't do much uh, about uh, figuring out what 
what your patient might have unless you have this uh, this table. And so uh, we're uh, glad to have that in there. I'd love to go into that a little more, but I don't think we've got time. There's six organ dysfunction, uh, six organ systems that are measured by objective criterion scored zero to four based on zero being considered normal, four being the worst possible. And uh, I just want to throw in here that we kept our sepsis two section because it's still pertinent. Um, the uh, a lot of physicians are not yet accepting sepsis three. They're skeptical and worry about using it without any prospective studies. Medicare hospital inpatient quality reporting sepsis measure still uses SIRS as a basis for sepsis, so doctors have to be aware of that and deal with that somehow. Um, I think that kind of summarizes it, but we really yeah, did expand our discussion. Yeah, if I could just add to that, that uh, uh, you all would want to make sure that a lot of these measures are captured, so such as the Glasgow Coma Scale, often that's not there. Um, so you'd want to have the uh, nursing to capture that on all of these patients that come in with an infection, and then some of these other values uh, that those are uh, collected in the lab. Yeah, you need a bilirubin, and uh, if they don't order, you know, the uh, a, a, the uh, was comprehensive metabolic profile for some reason, you won't have a bilirubin. You want to measure everything that might contribute to uh, the analysis of sepsis. It's difficult to operationalize, but can be done. Mm. Well, I will say we we got we got a lot of questions about uh, clinical related and coding related questions. I don't know if we could maybe take one or two of these since we have a little, we might have a little extra time today. Um, but before we do that, maybe, maybe yeah. we can wrap up here with a quick preview of the. Uh, the outpatient CDI pocket guide. This is a, a new publication for us. It was, just came out in September of this year. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and, and maybe pull and pull that up. This is uh, again the, the con table of contents for a, a different pocket guide, outpatient CDI, uh, focusing on HCCs. Um, so maybe I don't know, Cynthia. Do you want to take this and maybe talk a little bit sure. about what what folks could expect out of this book? Sure, I'd be delighted to do that. Um, this new pocket guide, and it's titled Outpatient Pocket Guide, focusing on HCCs because it focuses heavily on the HCC methodology and some of the most commonly targeted HCC conditions that um, we know is so crucial for quality metrics for both the hospital and the physician. So it's an inpatient and outpatient perspective. Um, so that uh, because the coding of HCCs and the documentation of them is so important, um, HCCs have become a part of many inpatient CDI programs. So it's, uh, this guide's really valuable for both the inpatient documentation specialists. It's not just for the outpatient, uh, outpatient side or if you have an outpatient CDI program. So we've organized this new pocket guide similar to the inpatient pocket guide. Um, we have four tabs, um, outpatient CDI guidelines and key diagnoses, and then HCC. So it's very similar to how we've organized the other pocket guide. Um, so and as you can see from the table of contents, we've included a lot of topics that will help you 
um, understand and build your program with some best practices. Um, we've included in the guidelines all the outpatient diagnostic and professional e &M guidelines. Um, the key diagnoses, uh, we've included not only the detailed clinical diagnostic criteria, but really a recommended kind of practical approach to meeting the official coding guideline requirement for uh, clinical relevance of a condition, which is actually different um, for the outpatient encounter. Um, and actually, this approach follows the provider's E&M key components of history, physical exam, medical decision-making. Um, that's really so familiar to physicians. Um, and then the last section, which is on the second page of the table of contents, um, a listing of several hundred um, or more of the more common or really target HCC conditions, um, and then the CMS HCCs with their weight. Um, so that, that kind of gives you an overview of uh, what's included in this new pocket guide. Uh, Brian, do you, could I make uh, just a couple of comments there? Absolutely. Yeah. If you'll show that slide again and oh, maybe go to the yeah. first first page of it, or can you do that? We'll do. Let me let me uh, give me just a moment here, Richard, if you don't mind. I'll go you know, while you're working on that. I'll just say that. Uh, there's a substantial portion of uh, this new outpatient pocket guide that is devoted to the physician E&M coding and billing for level of service uh, that discusses that because that has become, you know, going up to the next, you know, the first one, there you go. Um, that has become uh, the object or the, the objective of some uh, outpatient uh, CDI programs that they're looking at and trying to help physicians uh, improve their E&M documentation. And so that's included here, of course, regulatory compliance is a big deal. And there are some very big issues there because the outpatient rules are quite a bit different than the inpatient rules. And then on these key diagnoses, I just want to point out where some of the big opportunities are, one is the amputation status, which may not get addressed by the doctors during the year. Uh, scroll on down there for me, Brian. Probably the biggest opportunity, and, and we hear this from everyone, including the uh, Medicare Advantage uh, uh, executives, that these are, the diabetic complications are one of the biggest areas where opportunities uh, exist. So uh, you can see that those are done in a very detailed uh, detailed manner. I think Cynthia mentioned that we have a, a specific approach to validating that uh, diagnoses can actually be coded, uh, that they were addressed, which is sort of dealing with this so-called MEAT, M-E-A-T criteria, which are very vague. We have some very specific things in here about what providers should do um, uh, and where what they should say and what what where that should be. Uh, so uh, we think it's a, a very valuable approach, and it uh, uh, follows, as Cynthia said, their E and M uh, documentation process. That's great. That's all I have. Yeah, got. I know there's been Thanks. I know there's been increased scrutiny in this area, and uh, Richard, you've seen probably some of the blog posts I've put up about some cases about this, but you guys really have a compliance approach to making sure that, you know, again, you mentioned, you referenced the meat criteria and making sure those conditions have been 
addressed uh, and, and how to actually get that in the documentation. So I, I think this will be a very valuable resource. And appreciate you guys giving folks a, a, a preview of this if you haven't don't already have it. Um, well, why don't we go ahead and uh, share our poll results. I'll pull those back up here. Again, we asked folks, um, how often do you reference the CDI Pocket Guide during your health record reviews? So 19% use it multiple times per day. That's great. Another 12% once per day. 23% a few times a week. 19% uh, maybe use it uh, as needed as a reference. Uh, and a little over a quarter of our audience don't own the, the CDI Pocket Guide. So those are our, um, those are the results. It looks like this slight majority here, 23% use it a couple times a week. So fairly regularly used tool here. Um, any insight? Maybe Richard, you want to start off with this poll question? Any thoughts? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm actually kind of pleased at the uh, 27% uh, who don't own one, who are actually listening in to learn about the CDI Pocket Guide. So if you're not familiar with it, uh, it, it has been uh, very well received and uh, um, very easy to understand. And uh, we are convinced, and most, most documentation specialists also um, use this on a very regular uh, basis. And I think multiple times a day, once a day, is uh, makes it a pretty valuable tool, even a couple of times a week. So um, this, I, I'm so glad that you folks who don't own one actually participated in this. We had a chance to show you just the kind of things that uh, that it has and how it might be of value to you. Right. Yeah. I guess if I could just add, I, I know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I know that when I uh, do health record reviews myself, I'm always referencing this because I can't remember everything that's in there myself. <laughs> you, you frequently say to yourself, why? This, this is a very well-written book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same way. All right. <laughs> I, use yeah. it, I use it several times a day, honestly. All right. Yeah, it works. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we're at the top of the hour. We we didn't get to some questions, but maybe I could send you guys those after the program. I do have a record of those for those that took the time to write in a question. Maybe we'll consider that for the pocket guide. So thank you for doing those. Um, that will do it for today's uh, edition of Actus Radio. We'll be back in one week, back on our regular cadence uh, for a special show, Glorianne Bryant, Reflections on a Career in HIM and CDI. I don't know if people remember Glorianne. She's been uh, a, a mainstay and a fixture in the HIM profession. She was a founding member of the Actus Advisory Board. She recently announced her retirement after more than three decades in HIM. So we're going to have her on to say thanks right around Thanksgiving and uh, hear from her and her perspectives on her career and how it's the CEI profession's changed. And I think it'll be an interesting and uh, well-received show. So if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, you can please send me an email. I'm available at bmurphy at actus.org. Thanks again to, for Richard and Cynthia for joining us for today's special edition, and uh, we'll see you all back here in one week. Take care, everyone. <laughs>